So I'm up, I'm starting my um, submission. And I just want to read out what I've written so far. I write this with considerable concern as my contribution to the forced adoptions inquiry. I'm aware generally that submissions from family, communities, institutions and individuals affected have been requested. I have not perhaps provided this in adequate time. Nonetheless, it is critical. Throughout the submission, I will address a number of matters, those more broadly addressed by the inquiry and collective groups. For example, mothers or the stolen generations. But I also wish to provide insight to the country's history of slavery, the latter because it is necessary to provide clarity, particularly for a group who have been previously invisible. There are three themes as well as a personal narrative I wish to vocalise. The first is institutional abuse, the second institutionalization, and the third victimization. The difference between the first and the second is this. Institutional abuse occurs similarly where power and institution meet and extend beyond the initial institution that caused physical, psychological and emotional grievances. It exists usually with some criminal element in that it is not at large sanctioned by a group or society. Institutionalization is where pattern norms, beliefs, values and modes of behavior form a larger constitution. Victimization may fall between the two or exist in one, depending on where lines are drawn. As we know, laws and institutions, legislation and policy shift continuously. Justice is obviously a factor. However, so are wealth, protection and power. Moreover, victimization relates to the idea that hierarchical constants in which those most likely to be powerless are the most subjected and least likely to be acknowledged by the state. Here we may apply some concept of the socialization of power or social constructs of deserving and entitled recipients of negative or positive awards. These include access to truth, arbitrations of truth, and prioritization or organization of truth, different to arbitration in that, while it may be recognized as true, it may not be perceived as valuable as other truths. Across the literature on institutional abuses, scholars have identified a number of findings consistent across all data. One finding in particular stands out in my mind. In the article, Bad Apples, Bad Barrel, Exploring Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse, Dearth observes an inquiry to the Christian brotherhood in which a conversation ensues. To paraphrase the essence of what is is in this conversation that holds true, rather than going through the entire dialogue, is the breadth of non-responsive and collective silence across institutions as indicative 
of mechanisms of a cover-up. Quite often, this is the case where institutional abuse occurs. Middleton et al. write that recognizing the phenomena of individuals or groups of individuals associated with an institution to further sexual abuse of children or a cover-up is central to ending abuse or at the very least, understanding how such instances remain regrettably repressed. In cases where transgenerational abuses occur, a culture of the misuse of power to endure resistance and persecution of perpetrators highlight a vulnerable, sorry, highlight a set of societal norms where legal or other permit violence against the body of those who are vulnerable and least acknowledged. Indeed, it has only been in the last two decades that large-scale investigations and inquiries have really occurred in many parts of the Western world. Some have led to reparations, lending value to the argument of institutionalization as a mode of violence against those groups who are least able to resist. Again. Organizational analysis suggests that individuals are constantly engaged in calculations of the cost and benefits of, dif of different action choices and that behavior reflects such utility maximizing calculation. Importantly, social interdependence of organizations and environments place individuals as both actors and recipients of actions whereby overarching paradigms enable or deplete varying degrees to which maximization may subsist and yet remain reflective of organizational commitments. Where two or more entities come together to exchange goods or services, a third component of interdependence, reciprocity, may serve to enhance or invalidate. Reciprocity is largely concerned in international human rights law with victim-centered approaches. Here, where the precept hollows out the victim's visibility, particularly in cases of institutionalization, i.e. a set of social norms, etc., sanctioned, the act of victimization becomes a predominant institutional interest. For example, in the Rwandan genocide, sexual violence was not initially understood as an act of genocidal violence. Women, in spite of accounts of sexual violence specified in context of the act of genocide and directed as a form of dominion, did not receive accountability in the context of international human rights law. Later, reports instructed that rape be investigated and that impediments were the result of discriminatory attitudes against female victims 
that did not recognize their accounts of sexual violence as an act of genocide. In this way, institutions were alleviated the responsibility of necessary gender training, financing, and overall the empowerment of female victims as an imperative and reflective of structural failure resulting in the heinous human rights violations. The latter account is incredibly significant in the life of my family and my sister for whom I write the submission. It is significant because of who she is and the way institutions have resolved to objectify her and her historical institutional personhood. We are the great grandchildren of an African American woman who was blackbirded to Australia in circumstances shrouded with uncertainty. What we know of her life here and abroad lend insight to the role institutions played, not only in her life, but also the life of her descendants. Situating her historically also situates us in the transatlantic slave trade. What is clear is that she left the United States in the aftermath of the Civil War, which lasted from 1861 to 1865, her parents were slaves. Whether or not she was auctioned into slavery is to be determined. She worked as a wet nurse on Irambi Mission in Cara, New South Wales. The Slavery Abolition Act of 1833 by the British government tell us that she was an illegal slave under Australian law and the Crown in the early settlement period of Western New South Wales. Irambi Mission itself was not established until around the 1890s. She married in the early 19th century under the Native Protection Act to an Indigenous man who had previously fathered two of her children and subsequently had more children, two of whom did not survive according to public death and marriage records. From those children came the birth of our father. He was immediately removed from his parents at the age of two years and throughout his childhood also auctioned to local townspeople in the small town of Kempsey. He was further lent out on behalf of the Board of Education and Vocation to a number of white people across the state. In 2015-16, the state government made a settlement agreement with members of Kinchula Boys Home Aboriginal Corporation. Compensation was awarded under the Professional Standards Act on behalf of past governments, which evidenced not only child sexual assault but theft of finances and employment and acts of psychological punishment and torture. According to the Geneva Convention, 
signed by the Australian government initially in 1949. Article 2 in the present convention, genocide means, quote, any of the following acts committed with intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, a national ethnical, racial or religious group such as A, killing members of the group, B, causing serious bodily harm or mental harm to members of the group, C, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in parts, D, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group, and E, forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. Article 87, under prosecution of perpetrators of racist acts of the 2001 World Conference Against Racism, Racial Discrimination, Xenophobia and Related Intolerance, urges state parties to adopt legislation implementing the obligations they have assumed to prosecute and punish persons who have committed or ordered to be committed grave breaches of the Geneva Convention of 12th of August 1949 and additional Protocol 1 thereto and of serious violations of the laws and customs of war, in particular in relation to the principle of non-discrimination. Okay, I've added an edit. So after compensation was awarded under the Professional Standards Act on behalf of past governments, which evidenced not only child sexual assault, but the theft of finances and employment and acts of psychological punishment and torture. Officials on behalf of the Australian government repeatedly told him that his mother was a whore and his father was a devil. This is recorded in his legal documents, resembling the revered mind-warping and depatterning process of the US military and the CIA in Canada's 1980s MKUltra lawsuit, a program designated under the auspices of Dr Ewan Cameron, a once Nazi war criminal. Our father's official records further deny his African-American heritage. The government policy of assimilation into white Australia as devised under the white Australia policy of 1901 focused on his indigenous heritage and the eugenics ideals of social Darwinist beliefs of natural selection. These ideas similarly are held in high esteem throughout the history of 
forced adoption, where racial hygiene became a mechanistic value leading to the forced adoption of children. According to the Supplementary Convention on the Abolition of Slavery, the slave trade and institutions and practices similar to slavery in 1956, signed by Australia, state parties are required to eliminate all forms of slavery, including bondage, debt, serfdom, and, quote, any institution or practice whereby, one, a woman without the right to refuse is promised or given in marriage on payment of a consideration in money or in kind to her parents, guardian, family, or any other person or group, or two, the husband of a woman whose family or his claim have the right to transfer her to another person received for value or otherwise. The Convention on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women 1979, entered into force in 1981, states in Article 3, state parties shall take in all fields, in particular in the political, social, economic and cultural fields, all appropriate measures, including legislation, to ensure the full development and advancement of women for the purpose guaranteeing them the exercise and enjoyment of human rights and fundamental freedoms on a basis of equality with men. And part one, article six, state parties shall take all appropriate measures, including legislation to suppress all forms of traffic in women and exploitation of prostitution of women. Part 3, Articles 15 and 29 protect right to access U.S. inheritance by virtue of our great-grandmother's heritage. And part two, article nine, protects rights to determine one's own nationality. In 2012, Australian Parliament tabled the reports on the Commonwealth contribution to former forced adoption policies and practices, disclosing wide range systemic abuses against parents and children forced into adoption from the early 20th century until the 21st century. In 2021, the New South Wales state government issued an official apology. It is based on this apology that submissions have been requested and submitted.
I therefore submit the following resolutions. One, under the Commonwealth Reparations Initiative, we as a group, as far as we wish to acknowledge, are granted and acknowledged unique status in accordance with the United Nations Ark of Return Remembrance of the, quote, 15 million men, women and children who were the victim of the tragic transatlantic slave trade, unquote, as Indigenous and African-American persons. Two, legal counsel is funded and provided to redress and waiver all debts and exoneration as necessary. Three, full monetary compensation is provided to all parties, individuals, to the extent the law allows as partial reparations. Four, resources are immediately made available under special status and in accordance with UNESCO, protection of our epistemologies and heritage sites as far as the international covenants on economic, social and cultural rights allow. Five, special measures are taken to recognise our status at local, domestic and international levels, whereby some level of diplomatic immunity is instated. Six, measures are taken immediately to access public goods such as education, health and where necessary specified funded legal representation to ascertain our rightful citizenship status and to end all discrimination and ethnic cleansing. Seven, resources to research, control and determine our heritage and its prevention from extinction are awarded. I thank you for your time. Sincerely, Aletha Michelle Penrith.